You are listening to a podcast by Spring Hill Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. Spring Hill Church is called to reach everyday people with God's grace, His unconditional love, and the life-changing power of His Word. Thanks for listening, and if you would like more information, you can visit us online at springhill.cc. Well, this is week number two in our series called The Miracles of Jesus, and and as I mentioned to you last week, that we taught on this uh, several weeks ago, or several years ago, rather, about four years ago, right when the pandemic was going, and, and uh, the Lord just really directed me to go back and talk about some of these things before, and we're going to cover some details that we maybe did not get into in that go-round. And, and you know, one thing I'm so thankful for is that the word of God is progressive revelation. You know, you can feed upon the word of God and feed upon it and and never exhaust the revelation that God desires to bring to us and, and to impact our lives with. But again, so I just felt led to go back and let's talk about these things. I want to remind you what our foundation scripture is. And while I give you this, if you want to turn to Luke's gospel, the fourth chapter, in your Bibles, if you're following along. and uh, But John chapter 21 and verse 25, John 21 and verse 25, very last verse in the gospel of John, it says, and there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And then John closes it out by saying, amen. Now, I love the fact that we do have the gospels, the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and, and they highlight the, the, the probably the most pronounced miracles that Jesus did, or let's just say it this way, the ones that the Holy Spirit really felt like we needed to know about. But in the ministry of Jesus, there were so many things that were said and done, and, um, you know, again, as the scripture says, that um, the the vo- the world couldn't contain the volumes, and so, I, I, and then let's look at. Well, don't turn to it, but one other verse that I want to mention to you: Hebrews thirteen and verse eight says this: Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So, as we study the miracles of Jesus and things that He did in the past. I want you to understand that he is the same Jesus today as he was back then. So write this little statement down, and and this is going to kind of be the theme of this whole series, and that's this. What Jesus did, he still does. Let me say that again. What Jesus did, he still does. So whatever you see him doing in the Gospels, he is still the same Lord. He's still the same Jesus and he still does those things today. So that's what I want us to focus on. Now, a lot of this material, if not the largest portion of the material for this series, is coming from a series of messages that Rick Renner did called The Miracles of Jesus Christ. And, and you know, I love Pastor Rick. He's a Greek scholar, and uh, I, I thoroughly, thoroughly encourage you to check out a lot of his materials. Matter of fact, the videos for the series that I'm taking this material from are on YouTube. All you got to do is uh, just search Rick Renner and uh, and it's R E N N E R 
and the miracles of Jesus Christ. And there's like 15 videos, but they're all about 30 minutes each, but they're great. But a lot of the material that we're talking about comes from those videos. So let's go to Luke's gospel, the fourth chapter. And uh, I'm going to begin, excuse me, reading in verse 14. Now, let me just give you a little bit of background. The Lord Jesus um, was baptized in the Holy Spirit and baptized in water uh, with, with John and the, the latter part of chapter three. And then in the first part of chapter four, Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil after fasting and praying for 40 days and 40 nights. And of course we know Jesus defeated the devil in that temptation. And so, uh, after that, it says in verse 13, and when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Now, what you need to understand, and, and I'm, this isn't really part of our, our lesson tonight, but you know, if, if he does that to Jesus, he's going to do that for us as well. In other words, when you overcome the devil, don't think that, that he's, he's hard headed. He's he's, and he's persistent. I heard a preacher say one time that the devil is a persistent cuss. And so you need to know that um, if you, you know, when you overcome him and he seems to leave you alone, just know that it's until another opportune time, just like the Lord Jesus. So verse 14, then Jesus returned in the power of the spirit to Galilee and news of him went through all the surrounding region. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So what happened is, down in the southern part of Israel is where John the Baptist was baptizing people. And so Jesus began to make his way back up to northern Israel, where his hometown of Nazareth was. And so in verse 16, so he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, as his custom was. And he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day to read. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Nazareth. Okay. Nazareth was a very, at that time, a very, very, very small country town. Now, what's amazing is even in today's times, the town of Nazareth is, is about the size of Rock Hill population wise, about 80,000 people. So it's not an exceptionally large city even today, but back in this day, in Jesus day, it was uh, just a, a little bitty farming village. And uh, I looked online and most historians believe that it was 400 people or less. And uh, if you really wanted a good job uh, and you weren't a farmer, then you had to go to one of the surrounding communities in order to find work. But the, the one thing that attracted some people to this particular area is that there was a group uh, and the, the majority of the population of the town of Nazareth were very, very devoted and uh, to were Orthodox Jews in the sense of they were hardcore in following the Jewish religion and so forth. So because of that, they were very close-minded, they were very narrow-minded, um, and they really didn't have a lot to do with outsiders. And so you can imagine also with a town that size, you know, and you have families that were large back in the day, uh, much like, you know, back in 
if you're familiar with history, and I always find this very interesting, like, you know, my, on my grandfather on my father's side is one child of 16 in a farming community in northern Georgia, in the mountains of Georgia. And so, you know, this was the way it was back then. You know, most families were very large, you know, and by the way, Jesus wasn't an only child. He had several siblings. And so, you know, the, and my point is this, when you have a, a very small village like that and still have large families, everybody knows everybody's business. Everybody knows everybody in the town. Everybody is super familiar with what's going on in people's lives. And uh, so everybody was extremely familiar and everybody was extremely familiar with Jesus and his family. Okay. And so in uh, verse 16, it says, so he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. When he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. And he quotes from Isaiah, the 61st chapter. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them or those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And verse 20 says, then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. Now, what's interesting about this scripture is Jesus was very intentional in asking for the scroll from the prophet Isaiah, he was very intentional in finding this particular place in the scroll, and he was very intentional in what he read. You know, he didn't do like uh, maybe you've heard where he just held the Bible and just, you know, flipped it open and wherever it landed, that's where he chose to read. No, all of this was done by design and on purpose. So what you need to understand is Jesus was not just reading scripture. He was making a proclamation. He was declaring something to these people. So let me, let me go back and read it in the way that he would have said it and they would have interpreted it. So verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. And remember, they're all looking at him to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. So again, he's declaring to the people of Nazareth who he is and what his assignment is, okay? So let's see what their response was. And he said in verse 21, now this was the hook that got them. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, what Isaiah said several hundred years before, you're looking at him now sitting in your midst. Okay. Now they didn't mind so much. Uh, having a preacher in town. They didn't mind so much 
having this guy, you know, they had seen religious people and, you know, people maybe that went to a little extreme. They were kind of used to that, but they had never had anybody walk into town that they knew to this degree and stand up and declare, I am anointed by God. I was sent by God to do all of these things. And so notice what happens. Verse 22, so all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? So now, instead of hearing what Jesus said, they've already begun to discount him. They've already begun to minimize him. In other words, hey, we know this guy. We all grew up with this guy. This is Joseph's son, Jesus. Well, actually, he wasn't Joseph's full son, but they didn't believe that. And so Jesus comes back with something. He can see what's beginning to happen. And so in verse 23, he says this, you will surely say this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we've heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. And then he said, assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three and a half years or three years and six months. And there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath at the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman, the Syrian. Now, that was a big deal, what he just said right there, because Naaman was a Gentile. He was not even a Jew. And so what Jesus was saying is, here this widow woman had enough sense to realize who was in her midst and to draw upon the power of God that was upon Elijah. And then also, here's this man, a Gentile, that was able to come and receive from the prophet Elijah. In other words, you all aren't receiving from God because you fail to recognize who is in your midst. Well, that made them mad. I mean, that pushed them over the edge when he did that. So verse 28 says, so all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things were filled with wrath. That's a very polite old English way to say that they got mad as hornets. Okay. And it says, and they rose up. Now this is how mad they got. And they rose up and thrust him out of the city. And Nazareth uh, back then sat upon the crest of a hill and overlooked a small valley. And so they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. Now, you know, in my years of ministry, both full-time and part-time, you know, I've upset some people by some things that I've said, but I've never made somebody so mad they wanted to throw me off a cliff, okay? But Jesus, these people were pretty upset with Jesus, so much so that they gathered him up and we're going to throw him off the hill and off the cliff. And uh, so then verse 30, then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. What they didn't know is they couldn't hurt him unless he let them hurt him. Mm -hmm. And so um, 
Then verse 31, here's what I want to get to. Then again, verse 30, passing through the midst of them, he went his way. Then verse 31, he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbaths. So even though Nazareth was his hometown, Jesus chose to move his ministry from Nazareth down to a village or a city town uh, named Capernaum. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Capernaum because this was very, very significant. So the people of Nazareth just wholly rejected the Lord. And uh, the Bible says that he desired, my paraphrasation, he desired to move in their midst and perform miracles, but he could do no mighty work there, the scripture says, because of their unbelief. Now, here's what you need to understand about Jesus. He's not going to hang around where there's a bunch of unbelief all the time. Now, he loves people, and he wants to move in people's lives, but if all he's going to uh, run into with somebody is unbelief, 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 he's going to move on to find somebody in faith. You remember the Jesus asked the question, and I forget where it is exactly in the Gospels, but he was using a parable and are, are teaching a parable, and he, he ended the parable with this. He said, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith in the earth? And so Jesus is looking for faith. Now, why is he looking for faith? Because faith is the open door that gives him permission to be able to move in people's lives. He wanted to do so much more. He loved the people of his hometown. I mean, he knew them just as intimately as they knew him, and and he really wanted to minister to them, but they shut down the power of God and what he desired to do in their midst by their doubt and unbelief. So what he had to do is he had to move on from there so that he could be effective in what God had called him to do. What had God called him to do? Well, he just told us in quoting from Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach and teach and to heal and to set free and to deliver and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and all of that. So he had this anointing upon his life. He knew he was anointed to minister to people, but he was not going to be able to do it in Nazareth. So what he did is he moved his ministry from Nazareth down to a town named Capernaum. Now, Nazareth is in the upper northern portions of Israel. Capernaum is a town that's right on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. Now, let me tell you some things about Capernaum. Capernaum was completely different from Nazareth. Capernaum was, was a beautiful, let, let me picture it or paint the picture this way. If you could picture a resort town, a place where it was uh, fruitful, that there, you know, it was lush and green and, and lots and lots of people. And uh, because of the location of where it was, it was a major port on the Sea of Galilee. And uh, it was filled with tourists. You know, people would go to vacation. Even in Jesus' day, they went on vacations. We know that because, you know, the Roman people had villas all over the place. So people would go to Capernaum to vacation because of its beautiful location. There was a constant flow of trade there. 
People were coming and going. Travelers were coming and going. And, and ships on the Sea of Galilee. Now, don't misunderstand the size of the Sea of Galilee. In its widest part, the Sea of Galilee is eight miles across. So we're not talking about Lake Wiley. We're talking about, you know, a big body of water. Okay. And so you had people from the Decapolis, which Jesus went to later on down in the southwest corner of the Sea of Galilee, which was 10 cities all down there. Uh, and, and so they would trade with people where, where Capernaum was. And the, the town of Capernaum was right next to the Via Maris. Okay. Now, before I tell you what the Via Maris is, um, when the Romans began to conquer the known world to expand their empire um, at that time, what they would do is that they would build major roads that would span all over the, the known world at that time. And part of it was it was multi-purpose. Part of it was that it was for trade. Part of it was they wanted to be able to have uh, means that their uh, armies could move quickly and swiftly to many parts of the world. You know, if there was an uprising somewhere, they needed to be able to get the army there quickly. And you know what's funny is that some modern roads in Europe are built on top of the ancient Roman roads that the Romans built. Now, which is just a little side note, always amazes me how they can, they can build a road around here and it's got to be repaved three times in 20 years. But here the Romans build a road and they are still in existence today. I mean, they were so well built back then. And so it's just interesting to me. But um, now for those of you who are old enough to remember uh, when President Eisenhower, of course, this was just a little bit before my time, but when President Eisenhower decided he wanted to build the interstate road system within uh, the United States, and again, part of the, one of the main reasons for wanting to do that was so that military troops and equipment could be moved easily all around the country. That's why the interstates were built. They weren't built so primarily so you could get to Disney World quickly but that's just a side benefit of them. But here's what I want you to picture. All of these side highways, Route 66, you know, I see evidence of it when I, when I go to Florida on, on US 301 and some of the other highways that used to be widely traveled. I can remember I'm old enough or, or however you want to say it, before I-77 was finished and to go to Columbia, you had to go on US-21 all the way to Columbia. And uh, it was two lane, some of the way and so forth and so on. And uh, if you're old enough to remember, you remember Stuckey's? You remember where, you know, they had the roadside stores that you could go in and they had the candies and so forth and so on. Well, when they built the interstate road system, it, it, everything migrated towards the interstates and left those minor roads. I say all that to say this, Capernaum was right next to the Via Maris with M-A-R-I-S, which was a major Roman road that extended from Damascus, Syria, all the way down to Egypt. 
So in essence, you can picture it was like an interstate highway that had been built in from, say, you know, New York all the way down to Florida. And so when that Roman road was built, everything congregated and started moving right by that Roman road. Well, Capernaum was right next to the Via Maris. So you had all these people traveling and trading from Syria all the way down to Egypt. So my point is this, you had a wide array of people going back and forth, back and forth on this road and stopping in Capernaum. And so Capernaum was also home to a large regiment of Roman soldiers. There was a large contingent of Roman soldiers that was based there. And we know this because uh, there was a centurion that lived there who requested Jesus to come and heal his servant. Uh, there was also a major tax collecting office in Capernaum. Uh, this was the place where Jesus met Matthew, who was the tax collector and who eventually became a disciple of the Lord. So Capernaum was a very wealthy city. It was a very well-traveled city, and there was a lot of coming and going. Now, here's why I say all of that. Jesus moved his ministry to Capernaum so that his ministry could have the worldwide impact that he desired for it to have. He knew that his ministry was going to be greater and the impact of his ministry was going to be greater than just that sleepy little town in Northern Israel. He knew that when, when God launched him into his ministry, that, that the news and pardon this expression, fame of him would spread all up and down this Via Maris. And so that was one of the reasons, and he could affect many more people there. Now think about this. Let's say you lived in Egypt, you were passing through that area, and you heard about this Jesus who was performing miracles, and you were actually able to see Jesus perform a miracle. Well, do you think when you got to your destination, you're going to tell people about what you've seen and heard? Of course. And so again, the news of Jesus was able to, um, to spread. So basically from this central point of Capernaum, Jesus was able to impact people in all, almost all of the known world at the time. And this was really interesting. By the way, a little side note, you know, the 400 years of silence between the last prophecy about Jesus and the scriptures to when Jesus was born. You know, people call it the, the period of silence. But there was a lot that God was doing during that time that was going to lead to the huge success of Jesus' ministry. And part of that was the launch and the building of the Roman Empire. Uh, during that window of time is when Rome came to power and built their empire and it spread. And so by the time Jesus showed up on the earth, all of this infrastructure was in place in order to spread the gospel that was not there several hundred years before. And so the timing of the Lord is, is always impeccable. So uh, here you have this town of Capernaum. So Jesus moves his ministry down there. And later on, it actually became known as the city of Jesus. And because the fame spread abroad, uh, abroad there. 
So more miracles happened in the, the town of Capernaum and the surrounding area than any other place in all of Israel. And that's why I'm spending the time to emphasize it. Let me give you a quick list. And, and these are on the notes online. So if you miss anything, um, and, and some of these we will study, and some of them we'll, we'll cover at another time. But uh, let me just give you a few examples of some of the things that happened. Jesus, first thing, and we are going to look at this tonight, he cast an unclean spirit out of a notable man in the synagogue right when Jesus got into town. Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law there in Capernaum. By the way, Capernaum is where Peter, James, and John all were from. Peter's house is still in existence today, or the ruins of it. They built a Catholic church right on top of it. But if you go to Capernaum today, that church has a glass floor, and you can look down into the ruins of Peter's home. Um, Jesus healed many sick and demonized people in Capernaum. He healed the leper. He healed the paralytic. He healed the man with the withered hand. He healed the rich nobleman's son. Jesus caused a miraculous catch of fish there with, with Peter, James, and John. He healed the centurion's servant. He calmed the storm uh, in the Sea of Galilee mm -hmm. outside of Capernaum because he left Capernaum and went walking on the Sea of Galilee to catch up with the disciples. He healed the woman with the issue of blood there in Capernaum. He raised Jairus's daughter from the dead there in Capernaum. He healed the two blind men and cast a mute spirit out of another man there on the Caper in Capernaum. And again, he walked on the Sea of Galilee near Capernaum. He fed 4,000 minimum uh, in one group people on a hillside just outside of Capernaum. Now, we know it was more than 4,000 because it just counted the men. So, you know, some, some theologians and historians believe it was upward of 15,000. We'll talk about that miracle. That one was really cool. Jesus healed a boy who was under the influence of the occult in, in Capernaum. He performed the miracle of money in the fish's mouth for Peter to be able to pay his taxes. All that happened in Capernaum. So as you read through all these lists of supernatural miracles, it's hard not to think about all the people of Nazareth could have received but didn't because of their heart of unbelief and shutting the Lord out of what he wanted to do in their, in their town. And, you know, and I would just say this to us, let's not allow ourselves to fall into that same trap where we tie the hands of Jesus and what he wants to do in our lives because of our unbelief. Okay. So Capernaum welcomed Jesus with open arms. Nazareth threw him out with clenched fists. They wanted to throw him off a cliff. Capernaum was open-minded, free and accommodating. Accommodating Nazareth was closed-minded, religious and resistant. You know, I'm amazed, and I think a lot of people will be amazed at the amount of churches that Jesus is not allowed to go into. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. uh, and I say that because people get so wrapped up in their religious ideas and traditions and things like that, um, that, that they don't even allow the Lord to show up and to be a part of what he wants to do there. 
The people of Capernaum made room for Jesus. Now get this. The people of Capernaum made room for Jesus. And when you make room for Jesus, miraculous, great things happen. Let me say that again. The people of Capernaum made room for Jesus. And when you make room for Jesus, great things happen. So let's learn to make room for Jesus. Now, I want you to turn with me over to Mark's gospel, the first chapter, please. And let's look at what happened when Jesus rolls into town. Mark chapter one. Now, Jesus has been there for just a minute. He's, he's already gathered some of his disciples. Okay, so uh, he walked by the Sea of Galilee. He saw Simon and Andrew, and so he called them to, to follow him, and, and uh, he saw James and John, and so he gathered, was beginning to gather his disciples at this point, and all of this took place in Capernaum. In verse 21, it says, Then they went into Capernaum, and immediately... On the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and taught. Now, I love what Pastor Rick says. In the Greek language, it actually, it implies this. He walked in the door of the synagogue teaching. In other words, Jesus didn't wait till he got in, got settled down and all of that. He hit the floor running, so to speak, and walked straight into town, straight to the synagogue and started teaching the people. You know, I, I began to, uh, as I was studying this and looking over this, you know, I wondered, what was he teaching? Well, I can't help but think that maybe he started off in Isaiah 61, like he tried to do in, in Nazareth, and began to declare, you know, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's mm -hmm. anointed me, and began to teach the people about what God wants to do and and, you know, about the, the character and the nature of God and God's love for them and so forth and so on. And so it says in verse 22 in Mark chapter one, and they were astonished. The people were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. No, you know, again, the Bible says that Jesus was the word made flesh. So, you know, he lacked for nothing to teach them. In other words, you know, he, he, all he had to do was open the word and begin to expound it to them. But because he taught with such authority or influence, the people were astonished. What this means is <clears throat> in the Greek language, when, when he would teach, the people were dumbfounded. They were at a loss of words. In other words, you know, if you could say something that would impact people to the degree that their mouths are just open, they don't know what to say in response to that. Now, why is this? Um, Jesus was more than just self-confident. Jesus was anointed and is anointed, but he was anointed by the Holy Spirit. And this authority was granted to him in this anointing. And the Holy Spirit empowered him to be able to say what he was saying. Now, I will tell you this. The Holy Spirit, when he is anointing what you're saying, it will get people's attention. It will influence them. And uh, 
you know, it, it will get their attention on the Lord. And the anointing can simply amaze and influence people because it is the power of God. All right. It's not just inspiration, so to speak, and meaning that Jesus was just inspired to, you know, give three three points in a poem. No, he he was inspired. He was led by the Holy Spirit in what to teach and minister to the people. And the only comparison that they had were the religious leaders of the day that were teaching in the synagogue where he was. Now, let me tell you a little bit about them. These were scribes. Now, let me tell you about scribes. Scribes were highly trained, highly intellectual religious leaders of the day. And the reason they were called scribes is because they committed themselves to meticulously copying scroll after scroll, letter after letter, every book of the Bible. And the Bible back then was uh, the first five books, the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then all of the minor prophets and major prophets. And so these guys knew the word. They knew the word mentally. They were incredibly intelligent. But when they taught, they could not teach under the anointing because there was no anointing available to them because they were teaching out of religion. They were placing the people in bondage. You know, well, a lot of the times Jesus' confrontation with the religious leaders happened in Capernaum. And he would, you remember, he would call them whitewashed tombs. You know, in other words, you let guys look good on the outside, but you're horrible on the inside. And, and so there was no anointing on these religious leaders to minister to the people. And here Jesus shows up with the anointing, with the power of God, and the people are amazed and dumbfounded at what's going on. And so when Jesus entered the room, something happened. There was the power of God present. Now, go with me to verse 23 there in Mark chapter 1, and let's see what the response was. So, and they were astonished, verse 22, at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Verse 23, now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out. Now, pause and pay attention to the details. Where was this demon-possessed man the whole time? He was in the synagogue. In other words, I'm not taking away from the word of God at all, the written word, but what I want you to see is here this man was demon-possessed, needed help, needed deliverance, and was in the midst of those religious leaders day after day, week after week, time after time, and he never was able to get his deliverance. And the moment that Jesus walks into the room and begins to begins to teach and the anointing of God is present. Notice what happens. This man that had an unclean spirit, he cried out. Now in the Greek language, this word cried out, this phrase means he cried repeatedly, letting out a blood curdling hair on the back of your neck, stand up scream. 
And he was doing this over and over and over again because these spirits were responding to the power of God that had shown up in their midst. Now, notice what happened. The spirit cried out saying, verse 24, let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Notice what they called him, Jesus of Nazareth. Okay. In other words, trying to identify his humanity. Did you come to destroy us? And then they revert and they say, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, what's amazing about all of this is this demon spirit starts screaming and shrieking and uh, talking to the Lord. Now, Apparently, this spirit had encountered Jesus before. He said, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So when could this demonic spirit have encountered Jesus before? Well, what's interesting is there's two possibilities. Number one, he could have encountered him during the temptation when Jesus was in the wilderness and Jesus defeated them by speaking the word of God. Or it could have been when the third of the host in heaven rebelled against the Lord and <laughs> Jesus is the one that kicked them out. Jesus is the one, remember he told, he told them, he said, I, I saw Satan fall like lightning from the sky. Okay, <laughs> so they had encountered Jesus. They knew who he was that he was indeed the Holy One of God, okay? Verse 25, but Jesus rebuked him saying, be quiet and come out of him. Now, what's interesting, and I had not seen this before until I was studying what Pastor Rick said in the Greek. What's interesting is that um, in the Greek, when it says Jesus rebuked him, it, in the Greek, it actually says Jesus had to do it more than one time. And here's what happened. This spirit wanted to argue with Jesus and Jesus wasn't having it. Okay. Notice what Jesus said. Be quiet. That's a polite way of saying, shut up and come out of him. You don't, as a believer in Jesus Christ, if God by the spirit of God ever leads you to cast a demon out of somebody, you do not have to stand around and argue and have conversations with demonic spirits. Tell them to shut up and come out in Jesus' name. All right. And so Jesus, when the unclean, he spoke uh, to the unclean spirit and said, be quiet and come out of him. And notice what happened. Verse 26. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. Now we see this in another miracle. And perhaps we'll talk about this one. You remember the father that brought the epileptic boy to Jesus who had the spirit that would cast him into the fire and try and drown mm -hmm. him and, and so forth mm -hmm. and so on. When Jesus spoke to the spirit and commanded it to come out, the Bible says it convulsed the little boy and then, and then left him for dead. Here's mm -hmm. what you need to understand about demonic spirits. And I'm not trying to glorify them, but it, but it's helpful knowledge is they're trying to get the attention off of Jesus and onto them. So this last little show that this thing puts on before it leaves the man 
is all about trying to get the people's attention off of Jesus and onto it and onto the man, but it didn't work. It says, and when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him and notice what happened. Verse 27. And then they were all amazed said, so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? Okay. What new doctrine is this for, for with authority, he commands and even the unclean spirits and they obey him. Now I love this. The word command that, that they use there in the Greek language is a military term. And it would be as if a commanding officer is giving an order to a subordinate rank. Jesus knew who he is and who he was. He knew the power and the authority that he walked in and he commanded these spirits and, and other, as we'll see in the other miracles, he commanded them as if he's ordering them as a commanding officer. Now, here's what I want you to see in all of this. When Jesus uses you and me in this type of ministry, okay, you need to know who you are in Christ. You need to know that you have authority over the works of darkness. You need to know that you have authority over the power of the devil. You need to know that in the name of Jesus, they're not afraid of you, but they are afraid of that name. And they must and will respond to that name. Now, what they will try and do is get you to be afraid, but you cannot be moved by that. You stay in faith and you stay in that authority. The, the Bible says that, um, what is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority, he commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. The, 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 again, this is also a military term, meaning to fall in line or to obey what is spoken. So that spirit had no choice but to fall in line and to obey. When Jesus, the commander in chief of heaven's armies, told the unclean spirit to exit, the people eventually said, uh, essentially said, even the unclean spirits fall in line to his authority. Um, and, and they were utterly amazed and shocked by this because they had never seen this happen. Now, what's sad about this whole situation is that this man could have been delivered at any time or, or any time if those religious leaders had only taught and understood the covenant relationship. You know, and we'll probably talk about this miracle, but you remember when Jesus went into the synagogue in another town and there was a woman bowed over there, bowed over for 18 years. And you remember he rebuked the religious leaders and he said, ought not this woman having been or being a daughter of Abraham already been delivered? In other words, they had the ability through the covenant of Abraham that they could have ministered to her and set her free. And here this demon-possessed man, this man that needed help, this man that was bound up, this man that was being tormented by this spirit, 
was in their midst the whole time, and the covenant was there that could have set him free. But it took Jesus, a man anointed by the Holy Spirit, who knew who he was, knew who he was in the covenant, to, to be able to show up on the scene and minister deliverance to this man. So, again, we see a sense of amazement. We see a sense of awe that comes upon the people. And so it says in verse 28, notice this, and immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. Listen, folks, it doesn't take much when, when God shows up for, for word to get around because people are hurting. People are longing for God to show up, and, and they may not know how to articulate this. They may not know how to verbalize it, but people are hurting. People are lost. People are confused. People are bound up, and they're wanting God to show up and be able to show up in their lives in some way to be able to show to them he is real, he loves them, and he wants to minister to them. I love the fact that that really what this describes is something that is heard, a widespread rumor or spreading of information. It, it's, it's the picture of news ringing in the ears of its hearers. And so people were talking about this miracle worker who had moved to the city of Capernaum, and there was now a buzz going around this area uh, created by the reports of, of Jesus and his ministry. And so now we're going to begin to see people flocking to Jesus in order to receive help that they so desperately need from him. And so I wanted to just cover this so you would know and understand, number one, why Jesus had to relocate his ministry from Nazareth down to Capernaum. And then once he kicked off his ministry in Capernaum, the worldwide impact it was going to have. In, and, and you know what's remarkable? And, and I'm not discounting Jesus as the son of God and so forth. But think about this. This man's ministry was only three and a half years. And the impact that he was able to have on that entire region in three and a half years is absolutely phenomenal. Now, here's the other thing, and, and uh, I'm not belittling these things or, or taking away from them at all, but think about this. He did this without radio, television, social media, everything. It was all about the power of God showing up working and moving in people's lives. And I, I tell you one thing, the best advertisement is word of mouth. Because when people truly experience the goodness of God, they will tell somebody else about it. Thanks once again for tuning in to the Spring Hill Church podcast. We hope that you have been blessed by today's message. If you would like more information about the church, please feel free to visit us at springhill.cc.